I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I think so much of acting in front of a camera is actually your relationship with the crew, that you get to feel that you are a part of a whole dish of many ingredients and you're you're one of the ingredients but an important ingredient but you're not the only ingredient and now when I walk on a film set I was always sort of I, I didn't quite know who did what or who was who or you know and, and I felt shy and embarrassed on a film set um, and now I walk on a film set and I feel I know who's who and I know how to relate to people and I don't know I, I just found that was a very important part of the process. That's the wonderful Helen Mirren, who's as honest and searching in conversation as she is in the rich characters she's brought to us in performance after performance. She's just as thoughtful and fun as you'd expect her to be. This is so great to be talking with you. I'm, I'm really, I, I'm thrilled because I admire you so much as a person and as, a, as an actor. Thank you, Alan. That's lovely. And I... Not at all. I told you before, but I want to tell you again. I just saw the trailer for your acting master class, and it's brilliant. You, I'm, I swear to God, you had me choked up. You were so honest <laughs> about the experience. I recognized, you know, I recognized the things you were saying. Yes, I, I tried to make it as, as um, just as practical, you know, as possible, just literally practical things. And I, I thought, this is all a bit obvious, probably. I felt a bit sort of, um, mm, maybe I'm just, this is a bit too simplistic. But then I thought, you know what, it's what you know, it's what you experience. It's the practical experience sometimes is um, is valuable rather than the sort of, you know, uh, what can I say, the method or the, you know, the, the, all those interior journeys that we make as actors. It's, that's always very difficult to talk about without sounding incredibly pretentious. <laughs> so I... Well, also, I, I get the impression everybody has their own method. Funnily enough, actually, before I did the masterclass, I thought, well, I better learn something about acting. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> I bought The Art of Acting by Stanislavski and and then I, I revisited um, Peter Brook's writings about acting because I had worked with Peter Brook. So, um, you know, I consider him to be one of the great 20th century masters of theatre. So um, I revisited his works. Um, and, you know, I kind of learned to, I, you know, some of it went, oh, yeah, that's right, that works. Yes, uh, yeah, I guess I do that. Um, but really, I thought, you know, the, the practical things in a, fun, in a funny way uh, are more interesting. I have been very teased by my first opening um, salvo as, as an actor by saying, I just did the most difficult thing that there is to do as an actor, which is to walk across the stage and sit down absolutely as yourself <laughs> without trying to pretend to be anything. Well, that's the first thing that grabbed me by the throat. <laughs> yes, it's so true. Yeah. It is true. So what, you were, why were you teased? In what way? Oh, because, it, you know, I'm sure to a lot of people it does sound terribly pretentious. <laughs> but it's, but it, I, in my experience, it is the truth. It, it's 
the minute it's like turnover action or it's, you know, curtain up, walk on stage, you immediately get, par- I do, paralysed with self-consciousness and what am I doing with my hands and why are my feet behaving in such a peculiar way and, you know, and things that are perfectly normal for you to do in everyday life just suddenly become incredibly sort of, um, uh, you know, difficult. <laughs> Yeah, I, I find that unless you're occupied with something other than yourself. Ah, yes, good trade. It's hard yeah. for anybody, anybody to, in fact, I, I, to explain something about the need to have an obstacle in a play for the play to come alive, to, to believe that yes. people are really doing something. I have somebody from the audience walk across the stage with an empty glass, <laughs> and they're so self-conscious. <laughs> Then I have them walk across the stage with a glass so full to the brim, it's a molecule away from the top. And they they can't spill it or everyone in their village will die. What a brilliant exercise. That is genius, Alan, I have to say. And, I, you know, I've never, in all my years of experience, I've never realized you've just taught me something about that thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to watch your master class as soon as we're done talking, and you're going to teach me. <laughs> you didn't, as I didn't, you didn't go to acting school, did you? No, I didn't. I went to teacher's training college. So how did you learn your art? A practice. I mean, I was very lucky because in England, at the, at, and still exists, uh, there was an organisation called the Youth Theatre, the National Youth Theatre, yeah. and they would take kids from all sorts of backgrounds um, uh, and, and they do a production in the summer holidays. And it was a great way to for people like me who couldn't afford to go to drama school just to have the experience of doing a play, you know, learning lines and going on stage and doing a play. So um, an English teacher in my school, so often, isn't it, a good teacher, guides, you know, has sees something and guides you. And I, I've always um, felt that I owe a huge amount to this particular English teacher, told me about the youth theatre and I applied and, and, and I got in. And, and they did, after my second year, they did Antony and Cleopatra, mostly because they had big army scenes and that the guy who ran the theatre, Michael Croft, who was wonderful, but he liked boys more than he liked girls, and he liked uh, big groups of boys running on and off the stage. So with Anthony... With Antony and Cleopatra, you know, he had the Roman army and then all the Egyptians. uh, So... um, And Cleopatra was a sort of slightly a second you know, secondary thought in his mind. Oh, I suppose I'll have to have someone play Cleopatra. Uh, but he chose me, which was great. And um, and that sort of launched my career, basically. How old were you at that time? I was 18, 19. I was a wow. bit too young to play Cleopatra. But, um, but yes, I, I was pretty young, yes. But I, I don't know about you, Alan, but I, when I started, I had no interest in being a film actress. Or television. Same with me. Absolutely no interest. I wanted to be a great theatre actress. And and yep. all of my energy in the first 10 years of my career, I would say, I was concentrated on learning the craft and, and the art of being a theatre actor. 
You go back to the stage every few years. I, I, I do. Hear. I try to. Yes, I, I try to. Although it's, it's get, it gets increasingly difficult, doesn't it, as you get older? Um, yeah. Because the energy, it's funny. It's only, you know, maybe two to three to four hours a night, uh, you know, and... Talk. But they, they think that, people think that you're only working two hours I a night. Know. You're working from the you're minute you wake up in the morning. Absolutely right. From the minute you wake up in the morning, everything is geared towards that curtain up moment. And Can I um, speak tonight? Do I have a cold? Oh, my God. Absolutely. When do I eat? Yes. When do I eat? When do I rest? And the first thing you wake up, you open your eyes and you go, oh, 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 I have a voice, oh. Oh, thank God, yes, it's still there. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Now, when you go back to the stage, having made a lot of movies, what draws you back? Is it the love of being there? Because those of us who started there miss it usually. Or, or is it, do you, does, it, does it rev up your acting? Oh, it's a combination of things. It's a slight sense of not exactly duty, but challenge. It's like, can mm. I do it still? Can I... It, Am I capable? Um, so it's the sense of challenge and and a slight sense of duty because I still do, and it's completely wrong, and I've I've learnt how wrong this is. But there is a slight leftover of that. That's real acting, and mm. you know, film is something else, and and that's not true. Let me be absolutely clear about that. But it is a very different kind of energy and commitment and all the rest of it and and um so it's it's a combination of those things and and also honestly I you know I'm I'm lucky that I've managed to get to a point in my career where if I'm asked to play a role on stage it's going to be a great role (laughs) you know it's a great role normally and I don't know about you but I find it really hard to say no to great roles (laughs) it is yeah it is so do you have this feeling that that I have that there's something about acting on the stage that's fundamentally different from the film, from film acting, which is that in film, in film you have to do it, except in rare cases, you have to do it in little bits and pieces. Mm. And on the stage, when the curtain goes up, for two hours, it's all one shot. Yes, you're on a journey from the moment that thing goes up to the end. And also, you know, you're, you're your own editor, you know, in, in a yeah. film. And, and you have final cut every and night. And you have final cut. Exactly right. Absolutely. And, and the, the, the sort of, not the power, that's not the right word, but the, um, uh, you know, because what we do is tell a story or communicate a, a story and a, an emo- whatever it is, a, a moral story, or a, but a story to an audience. And, and, and you are responsible for that as an actor on the stage. You're not, of course, you're going to be helped by great set or great production values. But, you know, you are responsible for telling that story. Um, and, uh, and as you say, you have final cuts, a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Coming from the stage, I had a hard time learning to act in front of a camera. Did you, did you have to 
get yourself together and and be able to accept the challenges that you face in front of a camera. And for things like making sure you're in focus and in the light. And oh no, absolutely! Like that. I was I was so utterly useless, utterly useless because <laughs> you know no idea about getting in the shot even, or you know, or, or the frame of the camera, or what to do when you're in the frame. I you know I I felt when I started off in film acting I I called it you know deer in the headlights acting it's like (laughs) it's like action freeze go freeze well hold on I don't know what to do (laughs) so it took me a long time and then uh I did a film called Excalibur it was one of my very early films directed by John Borman and Poor John, he had all these completely inexperienced, who have all now become, funnily enough, Gabriel Byrne, Liam Neeson, myself, have become, you know, certainly experienced film actors. But at that point, none of us had any idea what we were doing. So, you know, I didn't realise that when you rehearsed a shot, you know, you couldn't change it. You know, you'd rehearsed it. Now the camera had rehearsed what they had to do, and I'd walk in and say, "I, I don't want to do what what I did in rehearsal. <laughs> I, I think I should sit over here, and then walk over there. And I think that would be much better." Uh, you know, so, <laughs> so poor John was saying, "No, you can't change it now. Just, go, go where you went. Yeah. yeah, the dolly's been laid, the track's been laid. You know, you, oh, oh God, you know, yeah. you've got to do yeah. what we rehearsed, Helen." So even those fundamentals I didn't understand. During this year of solitude that Arlene and I spent watching a lot of television, we watched three or four episodes a night of Prime Suspect. Oh, did you? Yes. Yes. Which you were so brilliant. And we just loved seeing you be her. And the spontaneity was amazing. Well... I was lucky it wasn't a series, so I wasn't on a sort of conveyor belt, but we did a four-hour story about every 18 months. So it was a fabulous job. But but when we were shooting it, you know, it was intense and and every day and all day, every day, long days. And I learned probably doing that was my real education in terms of uh, acting in front of a camera. I think so much of acting in front of a camera is actually your relationship with the crew, that you get to feel that you are a part of a whole dish of many ingredients and you're you're one of the ingredients, but an important ingredient, but you're not the only ingredient. And now when I walk on a film set, I was always sort of, I, I didn't quite know who did what or who was who or, you know, and, and I felt shy and embarrassed on a film set. Um, and now I walk on a film set and I feel I know who's who and I know how to relate to people. And I don't know. I, I just found that was a very important part of the process. You seem to have that sense of connection in everything you do. Making the movie, with connecting with the film crew, the performance itself where you connect with the other actors. And, I, and it's a genuine connection. It's not pretending to be connected. Totally, it's completely convincing. I was um, thinking the other day that when you did Prime Suspect, that was 
a benchmark. That was a breakthrough for it was. women on, yes. on television. Had there ever been a show like that where the, the woman was the lead and in charge of men and that kind of thing? No, no. And, and they weren't at all sure that it was going to work either. I mean, there had been... Cagney and Lacey had been on television. So you had had a female-led yeah. police show, but that was, a, you know, two women. Uh, the, the idea of one woman and her struggle with sexism, no, that, that had never been shown before. And, and they weren't at all sure that it was going to work, um, you know, that the audience would accept something yes, with a yes, female right. lead. And, um, you know, my God, how, how times have changed. I mean, it's incredible. I saw clips of a graduation speech you gave, which they're playing a lot on the internet now. Oh, because really? Of, as we speak, yeah, as we speak, this is a National Women's Month. Oh, right. And so your, your talk, where you say you had not identified yourself as a feminist until recently, I don't know when that talk was. Where, do you remember where it was and when it was? It might, if it, is it a commencement, a commencement speech? Because I did, yes, yes. I did the commencement speech for Tulane Uni- University about four or five years ago. So, um, it, so maybe, maybe it. it's that, yes, yes. So I was interested that you were in an instrumental, I, I think, in presenting that character in a, in a breakthrough way as a, as a feminist story. And yet you didn't identify as a feminist. What was going on in your head as you as you were in that experience and then as it changed into the into the person you were when you gave the Tulane speech? I, I, I mean I think I was a, I was completely a feminist in the sense that I I walked the walk. Mm. But what I didn't understand, and I was a bit um uh the sort of noisy proselytizing, you know, through the sixties and the seventies. Um, uh, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, to me, it's being a humanist, really. It's just being a person and being a, you know, doing what you feel is your right to do, you know, and, and that was how I sort of operated. And I think the other problem, Alan, was that I've always been a bit of a girly girl and I love makeup and I like dresses and, you know, high heels and, you know, um... Uh, and, you know, sexy under, underwear and stuff like that when I was younger. Um, and they, you know, they were not very feministy things, you know, where early feminism was a bit sort of dungarees and, you know, it was a bit like that. And, and but I certainly, I lived as, totally as a feminist. I always believed in having my own money. I didn't believe in marriage, actually. I didn't get married till quite late in life. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I believed in having my autonomy completely as a person. I never, um, you know, was not a completely independent person. Um, so, you know, I couldn't quite... But And then later on, when those elements of being a woman were accepted under the umbrella of feminism, I guess I felt, you know, OK, I can, I can be a feminist now, so I'm allowed... But, you know, you don't, that's the thing, isn't it? You don't, and, and I always used to say to guys, you know, just think for a moment. Every day of my life, I walk onto a film set that is 99% male. Every day of my life, I walk into a very male atmosphere. And 
you know, quite male-male as well. You know, you think of grips and sparks and, you know, the, the, the guys who push the dolly. It's, it's a male-male environment. And I said, just imagine if every day of your life you walked into 99% women and you had to negotiate, you know, women. But they never got it. They never, they went, oh, yeah, oh, I suppose so, yes. It's as if they'd never thought of it. Um, that's why I'm so, I'm so thrilled now to see female sound operators, female camera operators, and, and for the whole, I was on a set fairly recently, and it was 50% women, technical, you know, the technical side mm. was 50% women, and I was really thrilled to see that. Um, but at the same time, I was a white woman, and so I had all the privileges and the, and the advantages of in that era of being a white woman. I'm wondering if you establishing yourself so firmly as a strong female lead in a Prime Suspect helped you get over being stereotyped as the uh, attractive woman. Yes, as a, as a blonde, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, it did. I, I recognised that role. And also it, it came at me at, um, at an age... Uh, I think I was 40, or, yes, probably 40 when it came. So it's a brilliant role to take me into the next, you know, um, mm. era of my acting life. I was very lucky that that, that came it, along. It's always, it's always amazed me that at 40 you're considered an older woman. And yes. You're not considered an older man until around 80. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I think that's changing. I think that's changed a lot. But yes, in, in that, uh, that in those days, yes, yes, you're right. Although I must say, when I was in my early sixties, early sixties, which to me now is a kid, yes, I I started getting scripts where the guy dies at the end of dementia. You know, written probably by somebody who was not yeah, 30. Yes, years. exactly. <laughs> Just 60, must be so old. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. no, it's not. <laughs> when we come back from our break, Helen Mirren talks about how the greatest playwright who ever lived had problems with endings and the challenge of shooting a movie in the time of covid Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clearandvivid. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Helen Mirren. I get the impression you've mastered not only acting, but the art of the interview as well. I've I've seen you on a number of interviews. You're just as spontaneous. That thing you 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 said when you came out on stage in your master class, 
that walking across the stage is the hardest thing to do as yourself. Mm. That's true of an interview, too, because all you have to do is be yourself. But you have to be the six minutes of yourself that are the most scintillating in your life. Oh, my God. I find those interviews so, so frightening and... and um but you're fearless. Well, you're fearless. I'm, I try to push myself into a fearless state, you know, state I of saw, mind. Wait, I saw. Wait, let me let me tell you. Let me run down what I saw you do. Rapping with Corden. Oh yeah, but that's right. Coming out on stage and kissing. I Colbert. know. I feel very guilty about that. Sexual harassment. <laughs> You know well, that rapping. That were you using cue cards, or did you have to learn that? I, I learned it. I learned it. They were very sweet. They wow. really helped. They helped me a lot. Yes, they helped me a lot. Um, the, but the most frightening was, I think, it was a, a Letterman that I was on, and and you know, in the in the commercial break, you know, the producer came out and said, "Okay, we're doing good, but." Keep the energy up. Keep the energy up. You know, oh. you're doing fine, but yeah, just make sure you keep the energy up. And I think, oh, it's not my job to keep the energy up. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a guest here. I'm just like, I'm not a performer. I'm, you know. So it, I found that very, uh, very alarming and in, intimidating. And I immediately sort of slumped lower in my seat. <laughs> I know what that's like. It. It's it is it is a kind of performance. Oh, it and is. You don't absolutely. want, it to, you don't want no. it to be a performance. No, and you don't want it to be a performance. So you're in this horrible bind between, sort of, oh, I don't know. I I find them uh, really exhausting, and um, but it's it's good to sort of try and keep one's mind open and and not just be fixed on the story that you said you were going to tell, and then you tell that story. You know, it's, you know, you know how it is. I, w- I was thinking when we were talking about feminist roles. I wondered if you'd ever played Kate in *Taming of the Shrew*. Do you know? I never did. I never did play Kate. Yeah, you must have thought about it. What? How would mm. you? How would you play that last scene, where for the whole play she's staking out her own territory, and she's not giving in to the guy's demands, and then at the end she says something like. I'm ashamed that women are so simple that they make war with men instead of asking for peace. Mm. I put my hand under my yeah, husband's foot. foot. Yes. I, I thought about that and I thought maybe, because, you know, you can do things, oh, she's really cross and she doesn't really want to do it or she does it and then she turns around and goes like that to him. Or, you know. or, she, gives, <laughs> or she gives a wink to her girlfriend at wink the end. Wink to her like, girlfriend. Yeah, I didn't really mean that. Or, you know, those... Yeah. It's kind of hard to do without betraying the words. Yes, exactly. And I think with Shakespeare, sometimes you have to look for a, a, a much deeper, more profound understanding in it sometimes, you know. Anyway, the, you know, the, the last act of Shakespeare is often very problematic. He never quite, he never knew quite knew how to finish plays, you know. He wasn't very good at the, <laughs> the, the fifth act is always difficult, you know, all of them. They're, they're, like, really difficult. And kind of he just ties all the ends together and it's like he couldn't be bothered with the fifth act. But It is. It, it's also a problem to play, as brilliant as it is, to do a play today that was written 400 years ago. Yes, but the magic, isn't it, is, is that 
when it's well done and in a great production. Yeah, with Shakespeare, there's always something that touches the heart. So what hope do you have for us to reach that level of equality that you were hoping for a few minutes ago? Oh, I have enormous optimism for that. So, you know, it's one of the reasons I want, I'd like to stay alive, you know. I'm so curious about what happens next. I don't know about you. I mean, I feel so sorry for Kurt Cobain, you know, who never witnessed GPS. GPS is the most amazing thing, don't you think? I see that. I little, do. I mean, I watched my little dot, you know, especially when I was in New York, not quite sure where I was going. And, and there's my little, I could watch myself walking down Fifth Avenue. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. And I'm so, I'm so grateful that I was alive to see it, you know. You know, you you die young or you or you get old. There's nothing in between. And I, I, I don't want to die young. I want to, you know, I want to see what's happening, what's gonna happen, and and certainly what's happened in the last ten years in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of so many things. Incredible um breakthrough. Incredible. And the way now it's, it's you know, the, the things that were complete you know what I'm talking about. Utterly unthinkable 30 years ago, gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Utterly unthinkable. Uh, and now absolutely accepted. And, and it's, so, it's so exciting and wonderful to see these things happening. And, and as I say, to walk on a set and to see it 50% women. Even five years ago, that was not possible. So, you know, if we're, um, we're just at the threshold of that. So I'm, I'm very excited about what happens next. Well, I hope you do live a long time. I want to see your performance. When you're 100 years old, I want to see your performance <laughs> yeah. of yours. Sitting in a chair. I especially want that because I'm 10 years older than you, so it'll be a double whammy. Yeah, well, we do a two-hander. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, I can't wait. Yes. You're going off to shoot a film now, aren't you? I am. I'm going off to shoot in Prague under the new, you know, the the protocol, uh, the pro- COVID protocols, which I find quite sad, you know. It's great that we can work and obviously great that the um, crews can work, but the whole process of making a film is very, very different under those pro- uh, under those protocols. It's... Um, you know, you can't all, you know, meet people by craft services and have a chat to the, you know, to the sound guy. And, you know, you can't do any of those things. It's, um, it's a very different process. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the time when all of this will be over. How do they handle tight two shots and over the shoulders and that kind of thing? Good point. Well, people are tested all the time. You get tested two or three times uh. a week. So as in the minute someone comes up positive, um, basically the production gets shut down because then they mm. have... And, and the other thing they do is they keep... Obviously actors are in their... They keep people in their own pods, if you like, their own bubbles. So, um, you know, the camera crew are in one bubble, the actors are in another bubble um, with the makeup artists and the, um, and the costume people. Um, but if someone within that bubble gets um, 
you know, has a positive um, test, then you then basically the production gets shut down until everyone is negative again. Does it get in the way at all with your, because I'll be shooting in a couple of months, does it get in the way of your relating to the other actors? Well, the, actually, honestly, the only thing I've done so far was a solo, was a, a one-woman thing. I didn't have any uh, other actors in it. So this will be the first time uh, I'll have worked with, you know, with actors. Um, no, I suspect within the acting world, where it does is the director, because the director can't come up to you and give a note, you uh, know. Yeah. Um, that, that wouldn't have bothered a director I worked with once. He was at the <laughs> other end of the soundstage. <laughs> Let me guess and he would who call that out, was. He would call out directions by screaming. <laughs> like he would say sometimes, yes. more subtlety. <laughs> well, I, my theory is there's only four direct, good directions. And sometimes it's a combination of any two of them. And the four are faster, slower, more and less. And, <laughs> and 90% of, of direction is basically less faster. <laughs> we have to end our talk now, and I have to let you go so you can pack for your trip. But we close our shows with seven quick questions that are roughly okay. about communication, okay? They're, they're not embarrassing or anything. All right. First question. What do you wish you really understood? Um, oh, gosh. I, I'm not going to be able to answer any of these questions, Alan. I'm so bad at this sort of thing. Um, what do I wish I really understood? Um... How to be funny, I think, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, well, I'm the, not very good at being funny, and uh, I would love to understand comedy. You make, you make me laugh. <laughs> how do you, okay, number two, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Uh, well, that, that's difficult, isn't it? Because you, you're not, you don't necessarily, I, I mean, if you absolutely know that their facts are wrong, um, I guess you just say, you, you know, that's not true. Um, uh, but, you know, Kellyanne Conway was very mocked for talking about alternative truths. Mm. But I, you know, truth, truth of things sometimes is a matter of perception. Of course, there is an absolute fact, like it is a fact that today in Los Angeles, the sun is shining. It is not raining. The sun is shining. And that's that. Um, but there are other truths that are more subjective sometimes. Um, and, and, you know, that's what, sort of what art is about, isn't it? Is, is all the different uh, layers of truth and understandings of the truth. I've also felt when she made that statement that one way you could explain it was that Different truths or different layers of truth have different importance yes. to different people. Absolutely, and absolutely. And put your, they and could both be relatively true. Yes, absolutely, and and different understandings of the same fact. People can have very different mm. understandings of that fact, which colors the fact itself. If you like, you know, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? For example. Um, now here's the third question. 
What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> um, oh, I, I, it's not a strange question, but it was a very sweet question. I, I you know, I did a, 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 cl- a sort of class in Dallas. I was doing a tour of talking about Shakespeare and, and we did a, cl- uh, a sort of thing with the school kids and it was very sweet. They didn't want to know anything about acting or about Shakespeare. All they wanted to know was how much money we made and did we get to keep our costumes. (laughs) 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 That was all their interest. And I I loved it. That's great. Very practical. Mm. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, gosh, my husband is a compulsive talker. <laughs> nobody, nobody has come up with that answer yet. <laughs> I tell you, it's an unstoppable train. There is no stopping it. You can try to change the subject. You can be quietly asleep in the corner. There is no stopping an un- unstoppable talker. And I, don't, I hate people telling jokes. That's what I... There used to be a man, very often a male thing. You, you, you just one stupid joke after another. Really, all they want is an audience, and it's almost impossible to get away. You have to sort of go to the loo or something, and then sneak out the <laughs> sneak out the back door and not come back. I don't like jokes either. I don't no matter who tells. Yes, them. I mean funny jokes yeah. are great. Yeah, but you know the sort of people who just. Tell one, oh, I'll tell you a funny one. Have you heard the one about, and then that comes, oh, that's very, so let's talk, and, and, then, and then there's another joke. And really just all they want is someone is to be surrounded by an audience listening to them. And I find that very annoying. Well, let's say you're at a dinner party sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a, a true, genuine conversation with that person? Um... Well, my sister is very, very good at this, and she just asks them about their family, you know. And everyone's got a family, and everyone's family is interesting. And um, so, you know, subtle questions about, do you have children? Oh, oh, are they really? How did that work? And, you know, people love to talk about their families, and, and it's an easy conversation. Next to last question, what gives you confidence? Um... I think the thing that, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not a confident person. I'm, I'm very, I'm very, actually very unconfident. And, and as you know, in our job, that's, that's, that's difficult. Um, but the, the one thing that helps me is, is just to put, is to take the attention away from myself and put it on to other people, the people around you. And the minute you do that and stop thinking about yourself, you know, it's not that you get confidence, but you don't care quite so much about being <laughs> unconfident. You know, you forget, if you like. Yeah. So um, just to remember as that you are, as I say, just one of the ingredients. You're not the only ingredient. Mm. Last question. What book changed your life? Um, I don't... Uh, I don't... I know books have changed my life. I mean, I, I, mm. love, I love a good book, um, but I don't think any book has changed my life. No, I mean... <laughs> Helen, this has been so terrific. Oh, I'm so grateful to um, you for coming thank on Thank you. Show. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Bye-bye, guys. Bye.
This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Helen Mirren is one of the greatest and most compelling actors of our time. Her theater, television, and movie roles over the last 50-plus years have included several queens and numerous Shakespeare characters, including Prospera, a female Prospero, and, of course, Detective Jane Tennyson in the breakthrough television series Prime Suspect. That dates back to the 1990s. And if you don't know Prime Suspect, you got to check it out. It opened the door to new generations of tough, smart, troubled female detectives. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with anthropologist Herman Ponser. His studies of hunter-gatherers have provided a whole new perspective on the evergreen issue of diet and exercise. He surprised even himself when he measured how many calories the Hazda people of Tanzania burn each day, despite a lifestyle far more strenuous than the rest of us. So we were there to measure uh, energy expenditures, which are really fundamental to any organism's you know, biology. And we were sure that, you know, you can imagine it's very physically demanding to be a hunter-gatherer. We thought they would have very high energy expenditures every day. Um, and in, in fact, what we saw was that when we compared their, the calories they burn every day to the calories that men and women in the U.S. and other Western countries burn every day, it's the same. To find out how hunter-gatherers do so much more with the same number of calories that we use sitting in front of our computers, check out next week's Clear and Vivid with Herman Ponser. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, we begin a new season. And this season, we're featuring women scientists, starting on Thursday with Baronda Montgomery. In her new book, Lessons from Plants, Baronda really opened my eyes to how much plants connect and communicate. The great majority of plants in a forest are actually connected underground. And so there's so much communication that's happening between them. And I think too frequently we think of plants as these lone beings. I don't know why we're not, but we think of plants as kind of existing on their own. And they're actually in these very physically connected, but also chemically connected networks. That's really determining how, how well they do in those environments. Veranda Montgomery and what we humans can learn from plants' communication skills next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>